You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where J-pop lives forever. Whatever that means. episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bring you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, two of the most excellent Green Lanterns out there. And by out there, I definitely mean it in the literal sense, especially with Kyle. He's lost in space after his epic battle with Hal Jordan in issue 56, and now he's having a little trouble finding his way home. Luckily, the Rebels, which I guess is the group that spun off from the Legion series, are there to point him the way home. So we're going to have to read another book, The Rebels Book 1. Unfortunately, it really has nothing to do with the Green Lantern story itself, aside from allowing Kyle to get back to Earth. But when Kyle does get back to Earth, we find him moving into his new apartment in New York City, meeting his quirky, coffee-selling uh, new uh, landlord, and running into Simon, the strange villain of the Teen Titans who has a plastic dome over his brain. Neat. And things don't get much more normal over in the Guy Carden issue, as Guy is sent to protect Bill Clinton in the Twin Towers from pirates with lasers on their eye. Yes, Guy's learning how to use his powers and He's now having to fight pirates who want to kill Bill Clinton. It's an odd tale, but a fun one for Guy Gardner nonetheless. But we'll be getting to both those issues after I play a few promos for some awesome podcasts you should be listening to. And like usual, when we get back, we'll start on our coverage of Green Lantern number 57. Well, Rebels number one first. I'll get through it quick. Hello, ladies. Listen to your man. Now listen to me. Now listen to your man. Now listen to me. Sadly, he isn't me. But if he stopped downloading lame-ass podcasts and switched to Two True Freaks, he could learn to sound like me. Look down. Back up. Where are you? You're on the Enterprise with a man your man could sound like. What's in your hand? Back at me. I have it. It's a long box filled with comics that you love. Look again. The comics are now episodes. Anything is possible when your man listens to two true freaks and not lame asses. I'm on a tauntaun. Lancers, I've called you here to this unprecedented gathering because we face an unprecedented danger. An enemy we don't yet fully understand. 
for this moment. But we were created. But I don't need to tell you your duty. I don't need to tell you who we are. Chosen by the Mystic Guardians of the Universe. Recruited from across the galaxy for their bravery and courage. The best and brightest joined to fulfill a solemn oath. In brightest day. In blackest night. No evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power. Green Lantern's Light. Green Lantern's Light, a monthly podcast covering the adventures of Hal Jordan, John Stewart, Guy Gardner, and the entire Green Lantern Corps from 1984 through today. Say the oath. Join the Corps. Green Lantern's Light. Available monthly at GreenLanternsLight.com. And we're back. But before we get to the coverage of the epic, epicness that is Rebels number one, I'm just kind of disappointed. We've got some epic email from one of my favorite listeners out there. So... Let's go check the Just One of the Guys email bag. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and this time out, we've got a couple of letters from Scott Davis, frequent writer and fan of uh, Green Lantern and Guy Gardner, and my favorite Canadian of all time. Scott writes in saying, Hey, Sean, no worries about being busy. Life gets in the way all the time, and you've dedicated yourself through the whole Kyle run, so I know you're going to be around for a while to come. Yep, but I've still got at least a couple of years doing this podcast, so sadly or gladly, you'll be able to hear me for another couple of years. That decision is yours. Scott continues, Well, my business trip to Canada's version of the quote-unquote center of the universe, being Toronto, has come and gone, so I was able to catch up on a lot of Green Lantern and Guy Gardner. I realize now that in previous emails I was referring to Guy Gardner as the Warrior series, but I didn't know it starts out as only Guy Gardner. I guess the warrior thing comes later, which will be interesting. Yes, yes it will be. I had a lot of fun reading these, and beware my email below is huge, and it only covers the Green Lantern issues I've read, but you're you're the only other person I know who's reading these right now, so it's fun to talk about them. Here we go. Green Lantern 32-35, The Third Law. This was an interesting story arc. It had its moments, but in the end it kind of fell flat for me. Here's my notes when I was reading through them. In issue, 30, in issue 32, Hal proves he's the worst negotiator when buying a used plane by yelling in front of the used plane salesman, she's perfect, and she's only 40 grand. Way to go, Hal. So much for trying to get a bargain on a used plane and trying to save some money on your bank loan. The used plane salesman was looking desperate, too. I bet he probably could have got the plane for as low as 30. Later, Hal gets to take a ride by... It's taken for a ride by Pinky, the owner of the terminal, by paying $280 to keep his plane there. 
Now Hal's just throwing away the bank's money. I don't fully understand the whole new Guardians and the Chosen, and what I'm from what I'm reading, I don't have too much interest to go back and research who they are. Yeah, don't worry, I didn't have much interest in them either. So when Harpermere brings Black Flora's head to the rest of the group, and it, it was a very unemotional moment because it had no connection with the death of the character. I think you missed a sexual reference on page 18, when Hal is strolling through the town thinking about how he needs to keep his options open while hooking up with ladies by saying, options like that waitress at Tracy's. In fact, I've got a sudden, all of a sudden I've got this terrible craving for... For what, Hal? What do you have a craving for? It's definitely not food. I'm also getting sick of Hal's narcissism. He sees a hot Carol stroll by and he thinks she must be out... She must be about to make a big play for me. Get over yourself, Hal. Yep, Hal during this part of the issue was really... He was really self-centered. He was really not in tune with anyone else. He was just being, like you said, very narcissistic. Uh, good on picking that up. I totally agree with you there. Continuing, he says, In issue 33, Hal proves again that he's an asshole to Carol. He's about to take off to go to the Justice League in New York, but before he goes, he has to stop and tell Carol how attractive Arisi was and how they used to have sex all the time in a non-committal way. Ugh. The flashback panel where Hal is coming out of the shower with only a towel on after doing you-know-what with Arisi was disgusting. She's only 13. Uh, we kind of discussed this over on Green Lantern's Light uh, when we covered those issues where Arisi was using the ring to manipulate her aging process. and I kind of have to agree with you. It is kind of creepy that she suddenly went from a young teenager to a mature woman who Hal wanted to get with real quick. Continuing on, he says, beginning, uh, The beginning of issue 34 is hilarious when the Guardians call out Hal on his activities immediately after he's found out that the Chosen the new Guardians were swallowed up by the Interports. His excuses were terrible, and you nailed it. I'm not a big fan of referencing religion in comics. I think the Guardians could get their point across without referencing stories in the Bible. Jeff Johns has kind of done it in the past, and it takes me out of the story a bit. Entropy has arrived, and M.D. Bright's artwork is amazing. Your review of this issue was excellent because you picked up on some great points. Great job. Well, thank you, Scott. I appreciate that. I goes issue 35. Ugh. Gort gets caught in Entropy's darkness, which means he's going to lose precious years off the end of his life. He's a big dog, so he probably only started out with 10 or 12 years or so. Now he's got maybe 3 or 4 good years left? Yeah, I never really thought of uh, if Gort ages in actual dog years rather than human years. That's kind of odd. Interesting revelation that the Guardians need to preserve the energy in the universe to sustain the infinite in order to create the next singularity. I didn't see that one coming. Crazy revealed that Entropy is Krona, too. I didn't see that one coming, either. It looks like AA is male again. Or maybe he was always male. I don't remember. Yeah, that was a weird character to deal with, especially with its looks and its gender being kind of vastly different. Hal throws all his critical thinking away into, quote-unquote, faith and decides to, to attack Entropy. I'm not a big fan of this. I actually agree with AA at the end of the story when he decides to leave the core. It would be tough to follow a leader like Hal who gives up all his rationality and follows orders from the Guardians based on faith. It's not worth it. AA is my favorite new Green Lantern because of this. 
At the end, Hal basically says, because everything is absurd, he had to join the Guardians in their absurdity. I don't believe this. If you think something is absurd, it is absurd, and you should call them out. The ending of this story arc is absurd. Percival of the Little Folk is the new Green Lantern? Yeah. Percival really wasn't used, as far as I know, much more than that one issue in the uh, Ganthet's Tale story arc. He might have more in the uh, Green Lantern quarterly stuff, but unfortunately I haven't got to those yet. Don't worry, I eventually will, though. Green Lantern 36-39? Issue 36 was a nice Christmas break from the heavy issues before this. But right off the bat, Hal is a douche to Carol by ripping into her that she doesn't have a family to spend Christmas with. I think you've just been alone so long that you don't know what you're missing. My family may be far away, but weird. But at least I have one. Ugh, what a jerk. It sounds like it runs in the family, though. Sue reminds Carol how old she's getting by telling Carol that her biological clock runs down faster. That bio, her biological clock runs down faster than you know it. This is my first introduction to Doctor Light, and he contributes one of the funniest moments I've ever seen in a Green Lantern comic, when he literally places a yellow light bulb on Hal's ring, which completely disables it. Yep, I remember that part in the book, and and I thought that was completely ridiculous as well. Everybody needs to see how ridiculous this panel is. I wholly agree. Good point at how Hal should think twice about putting Dr. Light in the central power battery. This seems like a very risky move. What a surprise, Carol wants to marry Hal now. Why do girls always fall for the jerk beats in this world? Hard to say, Scott. Hard to say. Issue 37's final game was absolutely ridiculous. The picture of Hal Jordan on the cover is awful. Did the cover... Did Mark Badger really call himself Badger Sarian on the cover, or did someone else draw it? This is definitely not Gerard Jones' best work. It looks like they timed the issue to come out right before the Super Bowl, and it ends up just being another filler issue that doesn't tie in with Guy Gardner at all. And you are right, where's the hooker Sally? I'm really starting to like her character. Me too, I thought she was an interesting addition to the Guy Gardner book, and saddened that she really didn't show up anymore after uh, Bo Smith took on writing. Disappointing, though. It's funny how Hal says nobody cares about the Maroons except a few underdogs like Guy. I find this actually the opposite. A lot of people cheer for the underdog in sports. Bay City has already won four bowls, so most of the one billion audience would probably be cheering for the Maroons to win their first bowl, which is just the opposite of the main problem in the story that the crowd would generate so much energy if Bay City wins. Why does Hal say powered rings don't do much against magic? What am I missing here? Is the demon made of magic? If you could help me out, this would be great. But I totally don't understand. But I totally understand if you want to forget this issue ever existed. Yeah, let's let's just leave it at that. This this wasn't my favorite issue of Green Lantern. In fact, it's probably somewhere around the bottom. Uh, Scott could use one more funny point. How gives the audience the opposite of excitement by playing the TV show Skeeter? This show is so terrible that wouldn't it generate a lot of anger from the audience? And wouldn't that have the same effect with all of the anger generated that the demon would still be full of power? Sorry to bring this issue back to you like this. Uh, no problem. Uh, I covered it, and I kind of had to, and I appreciate you commenting on it. I'm going to go get a drink now. <laughs> no. Uh, issues 38 and 39 with Adam Strange. These are very worrying and confusing issues. And I can see how these two issues might have been the beginning of the end for Gerard Jones on Green Lantern. If it 
If it's tough for me to read now, how would have it been for our younger selves to read these 20 years ago? I really don't have any comments on these issues. Just thinking of them makes me exhausted. It looks like Hal has the hots for Olivia Reynolds now, too. This is starting to turn into an episode of Degrassi Junior High. Oh, I love that show. I wonder if Gerard Jones had five ladies on the go when he was writing these issues and he couldn't figure out which one he wanted. Is there a personal connection here? I could not tell you. On a separate note, the email from the listener in podcast number 34 was uncalled for. Sounds like he was just trolling the reaction out of you. Good job for taking the high road. Uh, I think that was the iTunes comment that someone made about me being uh, overly political. and uh, Yeah, I tried to deal with that the best way I could. I said that I'd read all emails and all uh, reviews on iTunes on the, on the show, and even though it was kind of a negative comment, uh, he did have some points to make, and I thought it would only be fair, even though uh, the person probably didn't listen to the uh, show where I commented about it. But uh, it is what it is, so yeah, I put it out there. Scott finished it up saying, Also, when you read my first email on the air in podcast number 38, I immediately noticed, I immediately noticed that you played Take Off in the background, and it was hilarious. It made my day. I didn't know you were a fan of the Canadian legends Bob and Doug McKenzie. Yes, I love the skies. I, I was a big SCTV fan. Uh, have you seen Strange Brew, he asked. And yes, I have. Funny movie. I love... That, that was a staple of the HBO days during the 80s, and I just watched that movie every time it was on. Uh, Scott says it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Finishes up saying, thank you for your time, and talk to you later, Scott. Well, thank you, Scott, for writing in. I've got another email from Scott, but since this one has taken a good chunk of time, I'm going to save that for next episode. So thank you again, Scott, for writing in. And if you want to write into the show, anyone who's listening can write in at uh, justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. Information's at the end of the show as well. But right now, we're going to head into our coverage of the Green Lantern books, starting with the non-Green Lantern book, Rebels Number 1. Rebels No. 1 was cover dated November 1994, with a release date of September 27, 1994. The cover price was $1.95 US, $2.75 Canada, and a pound twenty-five UK. The title was Escape to Nowhere. The writer was Tennessee Payer. Layouts were Arnie Jorgensen. Finishes were James Pascoe. Letter was Gaspar Saladino. Colorist was Stuart Shaffitz. Assistant editor was Peter Tomasi, and editor was Dan Raspler. Vril Dobbs, founder of the interplanetary security agency Legion, has been ousted and branded a criminal by his power-mad son. Now he and a small band of loyalists flee their former comrades in a mysterious alien spacecraft from another time. Their escape is barely underway when a fleet of Legion gunships stage an ambush. And here we see Docs having some problems getting said alien spaceship to respond to his commands and decides to take out his frustrations on the rest of the exiled Legionnaires. The group leaves Docs to angrily stew, while elsewhere a Legion ship has brought Green Lantern Kyle Rayner on board for questioning. Kyle says he just wants to find his way back home, and Baby Brainiac puts him under arrest. Back on the Rebel ship, the crew finds a barrel full of brains, and Docs figures out how to make the ship go. On the Legion ship, Kyle buys the story that Baby Brainiac has fed him about Docs and the Rebels, and offers to take them out. Docs sees the Lantern leading the fleet against him, and decides to take a ship into the atmosphere of a nearby populated planet. 
Doc skims the surface of the major city and the Legion ships, unable to pursue, open fire on the helpless inhabitants. Enraged, Kyle blasts all of the Legion ships away from the planet, effectively saving Docs and his crew. Docs and Kyle meet up in a crater where the alien city once stood, and Kyle learns that Docs deliberately endangered the ancient aliens to show what the Legion ships would do. Frustrated, Kyle cold cocks Vril Drox, that's a mouthful, after he tells him how to get back to Earth. The story then ends with Baby Brainiac meeting up with Strata's husband, who is P.O. that Docs interrupted his wedding ceremony. And as for notes for this issue, well, there really aren't a lot because it's sort of a tie-in issue. Essentially, I am kind of irked that I did have to shell out for this issue because, in all honesty, it's not very good. The story is okay, but the art is really bad. Well, maybe I'm being too strong on it, but it's not very good by any stretch of the imagination. In the case of the story... Lobo is the main character in the book, and Lobo really looks weird at times. When I think of Lobo, I usually think of this sort of buff, beefed-up, steroided-out, muscular guy. And in the book here, he looks downright emaciated at times. Kyle also looks really wonky, and the inking throughout is all just way too thick and blocky-looking. Uh, for a first issue, this definitely wouldn't sell me on the series, which is really odd because the actual Legion title ran for 70-some-odd issues and is regarded as one of the better stories and one of the better books of the late 80s and early 90s. And it seems that the uh, same team uh, that's writing this Rebels book was the uh, one that was finishing out the Legion book. So, not a very auspicious start for the book, and unfortunately it's not really tied in with Green Lantern in any way, other than Vril Docs essentially saying, oh, by the way, this is how you get home. So, that's about it. Oh, and if you wanted to know what Rebels stand for, because much like Legion, it's an anagram, or not an anagram, an acronym, which stands for the Revolutionary Elite Brigade to Eradicate Legion Supremacy, which I guess is also an acronym for the Revolutionary Elite Brigade to eliminate licensed extra-governmental interstellar operatives network supremacy, which is just a I do all of that so I can get to this, the thing that I actually wanted to cover on this show, Green Lantern number 57, which was cover dated December 1994 with a release date on October 18, 1994. It had a cover price of $1.50 US, $2.10 Canada, and $70p UK. Title this time out was Farewells. The writer was Ron Mars, penciler was Daryl Banks, inker Romeo Tangal, Colorist Steve Matson, letterer Albert Guzman, and Drunk with Power, Eddie Braganza, and him too, Kevin Dooley. Yep, I'm betting Dooley was drinking quite a bit, that bastard. <clears throat> Otherwise, we'll start with the story. 
Standing at the graveside of the love of his life, Alexandra DeWitt, Kyle Rayner apologizes for not being at her funeral. He tells her that he's found an apartment in New York City, as well as a job doing toy designs. He says it's better this way, as there's nothing left here for him. No family, no friends, and he's almost certain that Alex's parents blame him for her death. And as he says his final goodbye, tears streaming down his face, he lays a ring construct rose at the base of her tombstone and vows that he will never forget her. We then cut to the mean streets of New York City, as an out-of-his-element Kyle is looking for his new apartment. He asks a passerby if he can direct him to the place, and the oddly-dressed man leads him directly to the apartment. Kyle turns to thank the man, but he's vanished, and in his place is a crazed homeless person who's yammering about monsters in the alley. Kyle is a little freaked out, but eventually the man starts harassing another person on the street, and we're induced to Radu, Kyle's new landlord and owner of the coffee shop on the first floor of the building Kyle's living in. The two make small talk until Kyle takes his key and heads upstairs to unpack. Kyle ring constructs up a moving crew to help him unpack and begins working on the toy design. The night wears on, but early in the morning Kyle has finished the design for the Cyber Rangers toy that he hoped will bring him enough money to pay this month's rent. Exhausted, Kyle gets ready to hit the sack when he sees a weird face in the window. Freaked out, Kyle falls out of his chair onto the floor, worried that the city might be getting to him already. But it's not the city Kyle needs to worry about. It's Simon, the plexiglass brain-domed Teen Titans villain, who's come to take Kyle's ring. Kyle regrets that he's not ready to give up to the ring to the chrome-domed creeper and blast him with a ring construct bull. Of course, Simon has appeared in a non-corporeal form, allowing the construct to pass through him and allowing him to meld with Kyle's mind. Pleased with the power that Simon now wields, Simon and Kyle's body heads out to destroy the Titans. Meanwhile, Changeling, Damage, Impulse, Arsenal, and Terra, the new Titans, are training at their headquarters when they're suddenly attacked by the Green Lantern. Thinking that he was killed during the fight with Parallax, the Titans wonder what Green Lantern is planning to do. To which the Simon-possessed Lantern replies, I'm here to kill you. As you can tell from Rebels number 1, that awesome issue, Kyle's made it back to Earth safely, and we're wrapping up story elements from his initial arc, and introducing ones that will carry on for the most of the rest of the series. Uh, we're getting the introduction that Kyle's going to have something to do with the Teen Titans, specifically with one of the members of the Titans, Donna Troy, but that's something that we'll get to later. We also see that Kyle's got a new Greenwich Village apartment, He's got Raydu, the landlord and coffee house owner, and Kyle's got a new job as a graphic art designer. And also, I really want to ask Thomas DJ when I get back with him about this, because some of the geography here, I don't know New York City, and I'm wondering if this is actually representative of it. Thomas has been kind of, well, openly vocal about some of the miscontinuity or the misrepresentation of the way things are in New York, specifically in the movies. Uh, 
he had some complaints about the new Amazing Spider-Man movie not being really right, and he definitely complains about the movie Escape from New York with, I think, the 58th Street Bridge or something that they're supposed to meet on, which doesn't even exist. So I'll ask him about whether or not this is an actual representation of New York. You would think it was, because I think the DC studios are stationed there. However, heading on to my notes, we'll start with the cover. It's a nice cover, and it's a good represent. Uh, pardon me. It's a good representation of Kyle by Jeff Johnson, that I guess is going to be paired with a new Teen Titans cover to finish it out. Uh, it's going to be both covers will link together to show a big sort of two-page splash image. Um, plus, uh, the interesting thing, it's got uh, soon-to-be love interest Donna Troy on the cover. However, she doesn't show up anywhere in the issue, so kind of odd there, but it's not unusual for a cover to show things that don't necessarily happen in the book. Pages 1 through 3, we get some really great artwork by Daryl Banks, who's finally coming into his own on the book. Uh, I think those first few issues where he had different pencilers with him kind of gave the book an uneven feel, and now he's kind of getting the character down. And These issues where Kyle's saying goodbye to Alex's grave are really not only heartfelt, but really well-drawn. And there's some wonderful imagery, especially the fact, of course, that when he's gone to the gravesite, it's raining, and he's using his ring to ring-construct an umbrella, and he uses the ring to ring-construct up a rose to lay at the uh, gravesite as well. And, of course, you've got the image of Kyle crying, and uh, uh, not only does Banks' art sell it, but Mars's dialogue here, especially on page three of the last three panels where Kyle is just completely broken up over the loss and he can just barely get out words to say how much he loved Alex. Uh, It's a really touching um, couple of pages and it works really well both uh, story-wise and art-wise. Really good stuff here. Then on page four we cut to Kyle moving to New York City and in panel two of this page, we've got this sort of weird cloaked character on the uh, far right-hand corner of this panel. It looks like it might be Desaad, but I can't be certain. Uh, also on the same panel, uh, the strange person that uh, Kyle talks to, I wouldn't have noticed this unless I looked it up on the internet, but I think it's supposed to be Wong, the sort of manservant to Doctor Strange in the uh, Doctor Strange books. So it's a nice kind of poking fun or homage, whichever you want to call it, to the Doctor Strange books, because Doctor Strange is essentially centered around Greenwich Village as well. Only in the Marvel Universe, of course. Page 5, panel 3. Yep, five minutes into being in New York City, and you get accosted by a crazy homeless person. Yeah, I think that's pretty much par for the course, isn't it? Then moving on to page 7, like I said, we get introduced to our first uh, supporting character who's going to be recurring throughout the entire series, Redu, the uh, Romanian landlord and coffee shop owner. Uh, He'll become sort of the conscience for Kyle throughout the series. He'll be the one that'll be giving Kyle all sort of fatherly advice and, you know, just being, like I said, sort of the conscience for him. And Kyle, of course, will help him out, uh, uh, eventually bringing the coffee shop to a bit more notoriety. It's uh, it's a nice dynamic that they're working on, and it's nice to see the characters set up uh, at the beginning here. And on page 8, panel 5, we get a little bit of character development early on with Radu, as 
he knows that Kyle is an artist, and as he's about to give Kyle the keys to his apartment, initially in this panel he pulls him back. He's like, um, you do have a job, don't you? Because he's not willing to give this apartment away to just some guy who's not going to be able to pay it. So it adds a bit of realism to the character, and I, I like that. He doesn't just hand over the keys to him and say, oh, sure, you can come and live here. Radio's not a naive character, and I like that they're shading this in, starting right right from the beginning with him. Page 9, panel 3. Man, I wish I could ring up some people who would have came when I was moving house to help me move things around the house. Or clean it, or do my kids' laundry. I guess what I'm saying is I want a power ring. That's essentially what I'm saying. Pages 10, uh, panels 4 through 7. We get a nice little progression here where Kyle's sitting at his artist table trying to draw the design for his work. And he can't think of anything, so what does he have to go do? Yeah, go get his Sony Discman and turn up the Green Day. Yep, that always gets me inspired as well. However, on page 11, it looks like some of the CDs that Kyle has are Phil Collins and Aerosmith, uh, the cover to one of them looks like a face. It might be Morrissey, but the face kind of looks like Phil Collins' I think No Jacket Required album, where it was just this big close-up of Phil Collins' face. And then the next panel, it's obviously a sort of Aerosmith logo. So I guess that's a kind of deviation from his whole Nine Inch Nails thing. But eventually we'll find out his tastes are more to the eclectic alternative music at the time, including Nine Inch Nails and Green Day, like I mentioned. Plus, when you get the final design of the Cyber Rangers villain containment unit, it looks strangely like the villain containment unit that Superman had on that panel in issue 53 of Green Lantern. After they had finished fighting Mongol, Superman said that he was going to put him somewhere where he wouldn't get out, and we get this image of this weird sort of tech thing. I don't know exactly what it was, but it looks kind of like this. So I'm wondering if the design might have been stolen from there. It's a really tenuous correlation at best, but I'm going to put it out there just because it looks kind of similar. Then on pages 12 through 13, Kyle sees a face in the window, and then a guy with a brain dome appear in his room. So maybe that homeless guy in the alley was kind of right about there being some weird stuff going on. Page 14, panel 3. As Simon confronts Kyle as Green Lantern, he's kind of a dickweed to him because he brings up Adara, the uh, former Green Lantern that took her own life in the last issue, so not really. He's trying to get Kyle's goat really early on here. But then on page 15, panel 3, we know Simon's a, a Teen Titans villain, but he seems to know everything about the noon Green Lantern, who really hasn't been around for a long time. He even knows what happened to him off-world, which no one should be able to know about. But he doesn't know that the Teen Titans aren't made up as of Wally as Kid Flash. He doesn't know that Donna isn't Wonder Girl anymore, and he doesn't know that Dick Grayson isn't Robin anymore. I mean, for someone who's got a big brain inside a plexiglass dome on his head, he's really behind the times. Page 17, panels 1 through 3. This is a really nice couple of panels that shows the transition of Kyle trying to fight Simon off and then Simon uh, 
taking over Kyle's body because it's only shown from the bottom of Kyle's face. It's basically nose down and you see his chin and the crab mask. And on the first panel, his mouth is sort of agog, like he's still shocked that Simon's taking him over. The next panel is just him with the sort of blank mouth closed look. And then the final panel, Cal's got this sort of maleficent or malicious grin on his face. And you can tell that Simon's in control at that point. So good transition and good artwork on these panels. Pages 18 through 19, we get a look at the, I guess not the new Teen Titans, but the new Titans. And we've got, like I said, uh, Impulse, Changeling, Arsenal, uh, Damage, and the new Terra... I'm not certain what happened with her. I guess it's some zero-hour thing. But they're definitely products of the 1990s. And Let me see if I can uh, count off the 90s tropes that we see on this panel. Let's see. Okay, we've got shoulder pads. Yeah, check. They're there. We've got the uh, leg pouches. Okay, yeah. Uh, Terror's wearing a leather jacket. Yes. Um, and we've got superheroes wearing sunglasses for apparently no reason. So... Yeah, uh, pretty much all the tropes in the 1990s are there, so good on you, Teen Titans. You've entered into the 90s. But that about does it for my notes for the Green Lantern issue. I'm going to go ahead and take a little break here, as I usually do, go get a drink of water, and when I come back, I'm going to start in on my coverage of Guy Gardner Warrior number 26 with my favorite president of all time, William Jefferson Clinton. Not really. Since the day Bruce Banner was bathed in gamma rays, he has fought the creature within. The creature torments Banner. The creature is unstoppable. The creature is incredible. Now, the countdown has begun to Banner's greatest confrontation with the Hulk. And all of his internal battles have come down to one moment. One final chance to reclaim his life and be whole. And three words will change the Hulk and Banner forever. Hardy, I'm home. Bigger, smarter, greener. The Hulk is taken to new heights as writer Peter David delivers an all-new phase for the Jade Giant. And Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast, is bringing it all to you. Join J. David Weeder, Lee Busby, and Michael Bailey as they turn a new corner and cover the all-new, all-different Incredible Hulk. Find the Ultimate Hulk podcast experience weekly at iTunes and at IncredibleHulkHomepage.com. Pad Smash. An Incredible Hulk podcast. Experience the epic like never before. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring the thrilling adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, The New 52 Adventures of Superman, Superman Forever Radio, I've got a few things to say about Superman. The Kara's World Podcast. The Superman Vidcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, 
Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Danny Sapp, Cayman Stoll, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co-host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we're back. So let's go ahead and get right into our coverage of Guy Gardner Warrior number 26. Guy Gardner Warrior number 26 was covered dated December 1994 with a release date of November 1st, 1994. The cover price was $1.50 US, $2.10 Canada, and $70p UK. The title was Snake Bit. Writer was Bo Smith. Penciler this time out was J.H. Williams III. Inkers were Wade Von Grawbadger and Dan Davis. Uh, colorist was Stuart Chaffetz. Letter was Albert de Guzman. And, assist- and the editor, sorry, was Eddie Bracanza. In New York City... New York City! Get a rope. President Bill Clinton is preparing to inaugurate the first of many new White House stations, which will be placed in various cities throughout the country. The president makes his way to the top of the World Trade Center, where the first station is located when the towers are both engulfed in a field of energy, and the president's reception area is invaded by modern-day pirates, who take the president and the assembled hostage. Meanwhile, across town, Guy Gardner is looking at the new business venture that's been given to him by Buck Wargo. Buck says that the bar will not only be a great business venture for Guy, but it will also be a base of operations for Guy's superheroics, as well as a place for Buck and company to crash after long bouts of punching Nazi dinosaurs. Guy is skeptical, so Buck offers him a deal. If he can beat his hand at poker, the bar gets sold and Guy is off the hook. If Buck wins, Guy moves in permanently. Smiling, Guy throws down his cards, showing three of a kind. Buck grins, showing that he was holding four aces, and tells Guy to start moving in. Smelling a cheat, Guy balks at Buck, who swears that he'd never cheat, but that he already had all of his stuff moved into the apartment upstairs. Guy relents, just as Verona, one of the warrior women of the Nava jungle, falls to her knees and says that she's here to serve the great warrior in any way he needs. In work battle and pleasure. Guy pulls Verona to her feet as Buck mentions that the bar just found itself a new bouncer and maybe something else. But before things can get more awkward, the expositional news network reports that the president is being held hostage by a known terrorist, Anthony Serpente, who goes by the name The Black Serpent. The group springs into action, with Joey researching the pirates' operations, and Guy, Buck, and Desmond using a MacGuffin device to get Guy past the energy barrier surrounding the Twin Towers. Surprisingly, it also allows ultra-badass New York City cop Nick Santos access to the building as well. Back with the hostages, the Black Serpent is introducing himself to the president by bitch-slapping him into the presidential podium. President Clinton asks what Serpenti's demands are, and the cyber pirate replies, What else? Money. At the same time, Santos is making his way up the building, taking out the guards with extreme force, as they're all hopped up on an experimental drug known as Flex. That's with two X's. Coincidentally, Guy Carter is doing the same thing, only not quite as well since he can't seem to get his Voltarian powers to manifest at the time. But Santos comes in to save him at the last minute, and the two continue to make their way toward the room where the hostages are being held. Taking the more subtle approach, Guy climbs the elevator shaft until he reaches the door where a guard hooks him in the back with the... 
Oh, look. The shock triggers Guy's transformation, and he tosses the guard down the shaft. Guy tries to maintain control of his Valdarian form as Serpente plans to destroy the building after he makes his escape. Guy and Santos run into each other again and decide to start up the Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, with the pirates on top of the Twin Towers. Guy rescues the president from being thrown off the building, then, morphing blades from his hands, engages the Black Serpent in a dual-rapier duel. The two fight, leaping from tower to tower, until Guy unleashes a super-ultra-mega-king Kamehameha blast at the baddie, causing him to wet in his pants in fear and surrender. Santos arrives at the second tower and takes the Black Serpent into custody, praising Guy for his heroism. Guy says it was all in today's work, but worries that he doesn't have his powers under control, and he doesn't know if he can maintain the control the next time. And so endeth issue 26. The book is starting to set forth the idea that Guy's Voldarian morphing powers, as weird as they may be, are something that he can turn on and off, but he doesn't exactly know how to do it as of yet. This will play out in the next few issues. Plus, with Mitch Bird off the book as penciler, the artwork is anywhere from meh to what the sweet jumping Jeebus was that. I know J.H. Williams is the same guy who is doing the Batgirl books currently in the uh, new 52 DC Universe, and I've heard good things about it, but the artwork here is just really not very good. There's some of the images that I'll get to here talking about that are really actually kind of disturbing. Um, how he got the job at uh, doing such a prestigious, prestigious book as Batgirl really surprises me, but who knows? Maybe he's improved over the years. Uh, go ahead and start with the cover, which is actually one of the better pieces of art in the book because, of course, the cover is done by Bird and Davis. However, it does depict either a very, very masculine female or a very masculine guy who's wearing a tube top on there. So maybe he's just embarrassed about his man boobies. You never know. But it's a very dynamic cover with Guy leaping from building to building with the rapiers in hand fighting off uh, the Black Serpent, this sort of cyber pirate. Odd. Cutting to page one, uh, I don't know if having Bill Clinton in the book really dates the book or gives it a sort of sense of being actually set in reality. And also, I know Bill Clinton may not have been the most stylish person around, especially at this time, but why on God's green earth is he wearing this awful green suit? I mean, it looks like he just won the Masters Tournament at the Players Golf Club or something. It's really obnoxious, even for Clinton. Pages 2 and 3, it's kind of weird and, well, I guess it's not really creepy nostalgia, but it's kind of weird nostalgia to see in this book that the Twin Towers are still here, and the weird energy shimmering around it gives it a sort of odd feel. Plus, uh, we get a nice, and by nice I mean relatively nice, uh, splash, two-page splash here with the pirates crashing into the building and taking all the piece, people hostage. Now, J.H. Williams does a really good job at drawing forms or uh, drawing figures of characters. It's just when he gets to the faces 
they look kind of off. Uh, one one picture in particular is the female reporter here on the far right side of panel three. Her face, she's got her right eye closed and her left eye open, and the face just looks all kind of wonky is the best way I could use to describe it. Page five, panel three, we get kind of an innuendo-filled panel with guy holding three queens in his hand and the sound effect of flap going on, so... You make your own little dirty jokes there. And then, of course, uh, the same page in panel four. That's not Guy Gardner. <laughs> that is Sloth from the Goonies. Sloth? You're going to live with me now. Huh? I'm going to take care of you. Because <laughs> I love you. It's just a really awkward image of Guy. I mean, his left eye is much lower, and his right eye is all sort of wide and bug-eyed. Like I said, the figure work, like his hand looks fine, but his face, J.H. Williams just can't seem to get faces right. It's horrifying. Ugh. Page six. Now we officially get our introduction to Verona in the book. I mean, she appeared at the end of the issue where Guy, Buck, and crew had all finished off uh, the Nazi dinosaurs and had witnessed the time portal. She was on that final splash panel, but she was never named. We get her name here, and it's a nice introduction to the book. And it's obviously that Verona wants to do some introducing of herself to Guy as well. You know what I mean. Page 8, panel 1. You can get from the dialogue here that Bo Smith might not be the biggest fan of the then current president. Let me read some of it. Uh, Guy says, This is the second time someone's gone after Bill. Do you think it's really terrorist or just a bunch of irate husbands, Buck? And Buck replies, Hmm, could be. Man, oh, Billy Boy really messed with my taxes. Maybe they got a stiff owl with them, too. So... Yeah, I'm not really surprised that Bo Smith wasn't a fan of Clinton, but he pl- he plays it he plays it safe. It's not a right-wing political screed against him, but he does poke fun at the president. Uh, I think this also takes into account uh, Bo Smith's character. He may not be approving of him, but he's not going to come out and just lambast him or bash him in the book. That's not the kind of guy I think Bo Smith would be. Plus, again, and I keep pointing it out, and I don't get why J.H. Williams, I guess, I don't know whether he's revered or whether he's looked on as a good artist, but he's got the Batgirl book again, and it surprises me that maybe just starting out here, his artwork's not very good. Because in a couple of panels on this page, we've got both Joey, which is probably very stereotypically wrong, and Guy having really obnoxious-looking buck teeth. It's just not the best art for the book. Page 9, we're introduced to the ultra-badass cop, obviously a New York City cop, Nick Santos. And I don't know if this is his only appearance, or whether he plays a little bit more in the Guy Gardner storyline, but I looked on like Wikipedia pages and other, uh, the DC Wikia site, I couldn't find really any information about him, so 
this and I think maybe the next issue might be his only appearance. But I don't know why he has such a prominent role in this. He's just there essentially to be the stereotypical over-the-top 90s trench coat wearing cop. So, extreme. Now, I'll give credit where credit's due. On page 10, panel 3, from the sort of uh, left rear side, this panel looks like it might be President Clinton. He's got sort of the profile down correctly. However, in the next panel, panel 4, as El Serpente, or whatever he's calling himself, the Black Serpent, smacks the President, it looks off and the artwork goes back to the really wonky facial expression. So, mm, hit and miss here. Then again, on page 12, panel 4, we get another shot of the pirate with his sword to the throat of the president, and the artwork looks a little better here, but they have to, of course, mention that Bill Clinton plays the saxophone. Uh, If you kids didn't know anything about Bill Clinton, back in the days, he was probably one of the first media-savvy presidents. He was notorious for going on the Arsenio Hall show, which was a talk show at the time, and playing saxophone. Playing it kind of averagely as well. He's definitely no Kenny G. On page 14, panel 6, I like that Guy's inner monologue, he he's berating himself for coming up with a really lame comeback to Nick Santos. Um, it is somewhat metatextual, but it shows that Guy realizes that he's off his game right now. I know that Bo Smith could have come up for a clever quip for Guy to use against Nick Santos, but he intentionally used a sort of lame one, which showed that his character in the book was kind of off. He wasn't really on his A game, so it works there. And again, credit to Bo Smith as a writer here. Page 15, we get two highly improbable things with... uh, Nick Santos using his gun to blast these hopped-up, juiced-up villains out the window of the Twin Tower. Probably wouldn't happen. Plus Guy shimming up the elevator cable, which also probably wouldn't happen. Now, here on page 16, the art seems to get a bit better, but I think that's because Dan Davis has taken over inking on these pages, and I think he has a better grasp of how Guy and the characters in this book look. But I still just can't believe that this is the person doing the artwork in the current Bad Girl book. I don't know whether it's like this or not. Maybe, like I said, maybe he's improved, and maybe I should stop harping on it. It's just, it's the one thing that detracts from me liking this book more. Page 18, panel 6, as Bill's thrown off the roof and Guy grabs him by the seat of the pants, Guy tells him to tell Al not to warm up his seat yet. Oh, thank God Al Gore didn't get on the president's thing. Oh, so bad. Page 19, panel 2, I'll give William some credit here. It's really good artwork as he draws Guy in silhouette with uh, the two swords that he's morphed out of his hands. It's pretty badass, and I really enjoy that. Then, of course, we get another example of Guy's powers on panel 7 of this, where Guy essentially leaps from one tower to the other, which I'm assuming is probably going to be a pretty impossible feat, unless you're a souped-up, 
alien DNA hybrid. Or hopped up on this flex with two X's drug, because Serpente does it right after him. Then on page 21, panel 1, as Guy looks like he's losing the sword fight, uh, he takes Serpente's leg and grabs it and basically snaps the lower part of his leg, I guess the tibia and fibula down there, so yeah, that's going to really hurt. And then, of course, on the uh, same page, there's a sort of eerie panel where Guy has gotten all juiced up on Voldarian power, and he's about to blast Serpente, and from the top of the Twin Tower, you see this giant explosion. Um, kind of eerie with the whole 9-11 thing happening. I'm certain it wasn't, well, I know it wasn't intended, but it's just sort of, like I said, it's kind of eerie and kind of uh, reminiscent of the whole attack, so uh, there it is. I mean, there's no real relation to it other than the fact that it's 9-11 and there's explosion, but it's just a weird image to see in a comic book, especially post, post that happening. But that finishes up my notes for the issue. Let's go ahead and check out the ads, see what they got to sell us this time around. And on the front inside cover, we get instantly win one million, or sorry, one of a million free The Page Master t-shirts. And uh, The Page Master was essentially the last cute film that Macaulay Culkin starred in. After this, he started growing older and creepier, and even in this movie, he was getting to that age where he wasn't necessarily the cute little cherubic kid who could slap his hands on his face and scream and make everyone go, aww. So they had to animate about 50% of the film, if I recall. But it's an ad essentially for the... uh, Nabisco cookies, including uh, Chips Ahoy, Oreo, and mm, Oreo Double Stuff. Uh, I love Oreo Double Stuff. Probably far too much. Then a few pages in, of course, the stereotypical ad for Clearasil pads in order to clear up the acne of you pathetic nerds who are reading this comic right now. Thanks, advertisers. Then a next page ad is for the WWF and no, not the World Wildlife Fund, the actual WWF at the time, the World Wrestling Federation, for Raw is War, and it's the Super NES, Game Boy, Genesis, and Game Gear version of, uh, I guess, WWF Raw. And it's got all the characters of the time, and unfortunately I, I kind of dropped out of wrestling at the time, so I'm certain there are people who love this, and it looks like a fun game, but I couldn't tell you who I think that maybe Brock Lesnar in there, and maybe The Undertaker. There's someone who looks like they've been assimilated by a Borg. Got a little weird striping on their head, and then there's a guy who looks like he's trying to pass a bowling ball. I don't know. Ugh. Wrestling. Oh, of course, and then we couldn't have a, another ad saying, Bigger is better. It's that simple. The new bigger Stridex pads, more simple, I'm sorry, simple pimple control. Yes. Thanks for uh, stereotyping all of us, guys. We really appreciate it, advertisers. In the middle of the book, we're treated to a two-page splash of the uh, Nerf Max Force uh, series of, well, weapons, I guess. This is when they were uh, basically putting out a lot of multi 
I guess, multi-shot weapons that you could load up, and this was kind of new for the nerf thing, so I guess they're starting out here. Uh, There's one that's like a big sort of Gatling gun, I guess, that shoots out little nerf darts. I found that these nerf toys really hardly ever work as well as they do in the commercials. If they do shoot, it's very limited range, and if they do are if they are supposed to suck onto things or have suction cups on them, very rarely do they actually attach to anything. So I guess it could be fun. I would probably work in just trying to find a laser tag place around your home city. You'll have more fun doing that. We get another ad for the Death and Return of Superman game, which I think may be released now for the Super NES. Uh, I think originally it was for the Genesis, and they ported it over to the Super NES, so... Probably just as good graphics, but just for the uh, Super NES. So there you go. Near the end of the book, we get the uh, Skycock. Sorry, Skycox. Jeez, Skybox uh, Ultimate or the Platinum Series cards for the Man of Steel, and it's got a really nice image of Superman here and a uh, silver banshee on the uh, page. It says because great cards are hard to find, and uh, one set alone couldn't handle all of the power. Uh, it's some nice imagery here. Um, I'm certain at the time these were hard cards to get, but I could imagine nowadays you might be able to find boxes upon eBay for relatively cheap. Like I said, I'm not a card collector, so couldn't really say. The last page of the book has an advertisement for Troy Aikman NFL football for the uh, Game Gear, Super Nintendo, the Genesis, and I guess the uh, Game Gear as well. It's another sort of Madden ripoff that just happened to promote Troy Aikman rather than John Madden. So, there you go. The back inside cover is the Rainblow bubblegum ad that uh, allowed you to get your name in a uh, personalized Batman book. So, it's I think it's one of those not really choose your adventure ones, but it's one of those generalized stories where they just insert your name and your image in. I don't even know if they insert your image. Let's see. No, they just insert your name, birthday, and hometown in a uh, comic book featuring Batman and Robin. And it looks like the uh, Batman Adventures sort of paraback art there. So that'd be kind of neat. And the back outside cover has an advertisement for the Game Boy version and the Sega CD version of NBA Jam that has uh, some of the cover copy of the best hoops game ever created, the hottest video basketball game around, and it sizzles. Now for those of you who didn't know, the Sega Genesis system also came with a port on it, which you could plug in this device called the Sega CD system. It was one of the earlier attempts of getting CD-based games on uh, console systems. I know the 3DO maybe did it, as well as another game system that was uh, the Philips CDI. Most of the games for it really weren't all that great. In fact, uh, some of the games they had on it were just really poor. But uh, it was an interesting idea, and it eventually led to the whole normal what we have in consoles today, with which are predominantly disc-based systems. So Sega was kind of a revolutionizer at the time. But that does it for ads. Of course, I have to mention that, as usual, neither of these books have been reprinted in any way, shape, or form. So 
If you're wanting to follow along, you're going to have to go back issue hunting. And I hope you do, because even though the art's a bit off in this issue, the Guy Gardner books in general have been really fun. And I'm glad I've gotten to the Kyle Rayner stories, because they're starting to grab my attention as well. Really glad to get back into all those. But next week, we're going to be covering a couple of issues again. We're probably going to be looking at the Teen Titan number 116, or actually I think it's New Titans 116. We're going to be looking at Green Lantern number 58, and Guy Gardner number 27. So, I hope you guys have a good weekend, and we'll catch you next Friday here at Just One of the Guys. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at just one of the guys, all one word, dot libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys Podcast and be sure to leave a review there. I'd love to read it on the next episode. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there because I don't have an account there. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern Podcast. The opening music for today's show was the Teen Titans theme by Hi Hi Puffy Yumi. Yeah, it's a J-pop band. As always, you can go get this song or get the Teen Titans show from Amazon.com. Amazon.com is a great website where you can find a variety of things, not only music, movies, but also electronics and pretty much anything else your heart desires. However, if you do decide to go to Amazon.com, I'd really appreciate it if you would go through the link at 2TrueFreaks.Libson.com. It's very simple. Just head on over to 2TrueFreaks at 2TrueFreaks.Libson.com, click on the Amazon banner at the top of the page, and get transported to an amazing website. When you purchase items through the link at 2TrueFreaks, a little bit of money will be going back to Scott and Chris, making sure that 2TrueFreaks stays on the air indefinitely.